So Lord, we uh, want to turn to you now because we love you. We're gathered here and at Northridge Cactus Chapel venue, those watching online, even from faraway places, we gather uh, because we want to know you and we want to follow you. We want to learn about you. Uh, and Lord, we want to grow deeper and more vibrant, more faithful in our trust in you. And so God, I pray that as we uh, turn to the next installment of this story that's been captivating us, the story of Esther, that God, you would indeed, by the power of your Holy Spirit, blow in and through our midst and speak to us and change us, God, as we engage with you now in your word. Thanks for the worship. Hopefully we're now prepared to meet you in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and I hope we can all say together, amen. So here is something that you and I both know, and that is that there are times in life where you have to make a tough call, right? There's times in life where you have to make a tough call. Lots of scenarios like this. So whether it's a tough call that has to do with a job choice or a tough call that has to do with a marriage that's in trouble, what to do there, or a kid that is rebelling and how to respond there, or finances that are tight and how risky should you be or not, or an addiction that has gripped you and whether you have the courage or not to deal with it, or maybe a family or a friend that needs some truth telling and whether you have the guts to do so or whether even to pursue a personal dream or not. Think about it. There are tons of scenarios that you and me face in which we come to a crossroads in life and we have to make a tough call, a good decision that comes through in a clutch and really counts in the end. And for the Christian who is naturally concerned with making decisions in line with God's will and purposes, it's even harder, amen? Because you gotta consider God's point of view when you make a decision. You can't be like the world and just make a decision as you feel is right. No, you gotta partner with God and adopt his values and even be able to discern his leading and will in whatever tough decision is before you. And then, to add even more insult to injury, there are times that you and I have to make the tough call in line with God's will, even when we are spiritually dry and feel far away from him. We noted this last week, that there are times in which we feel distant from God, but the wheels of our life keep spinning, right? I mean, things move on and you gotta make decisions and move on with life. And life doesn't care whether you are close to God or not. And so when it comes to all those decisions I mentioned a minute ago, when it comes to our jobs and our marriage and our parenting and our money and our struggles with sin and our friends and our family, even our dreams, life presents that crossroad and you gotta make the decision. And again, it doesn't care whether you're running on all eight spiritual cylinders or not. I call this the triple threat. The fact that at times you have to make a tough call in life. As a Christian, you have to discern God's will and you have to do so whether or not you feel close to him or not. It's the triple threat about making a tough call. Now, if you can relate to this at all, and I think that most of us can, you are right where Esther is in the story that we're looking at from the Old Testament this fall here at SBC. You might remember it's the tail end of the Old Testament period. 
Israel is in exile. That's really important. They've been captured and, and taken to faraway places in Persia. And Esther, this sweet and unassuming Jewish woman, is now the queen, and she's married to a nutcase king who is consumed with his own power and pleasure. It's a difficult marriage to say the least. Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin and father figure, has gotten everybody in trouble by refusing to bow down to the king's right-hand man, a man by the name of Haman, and to top it off. Haman is so ticked and filled with vengeance that he's planning on, on killing all the Jews in Persia, and there's over a million of them. So add it all up. If there was ever a need for a tough call, for a bold and risky decision that could either save Israel or bury her forever, literally, a tough call that needs to be made precisely when all these Jewish players feel very, very far from God, now was the time. And so at this point, let's let our storyteller, Matt, who attends our Cactus Campus, tell us about all the action as we turn the page into chapter four, the chapter before us today. And this will fill you in on what happens next. Look up here on your screen. When Mordecai learned of all that had happened, he tore his clothes to shreds and put on sackcloth and ashes. During biblical times, this was how people showed immense mourning and distress. Similar to today when someone wears all black after a loved one passes away, Mordecai then roamed the streets of Susa, lamenting with loud and bitter cries as he made his way toward the palace. Once he arrived at the king's gate though, he was denied entry for no one was allowed to enter the palace dressed as he was. There was great mourning throughout all of Persia as the Jewish people heard of the news. Thousands in every city, all of them fasting and weeping, putting on sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's attendants told her about Mordecai's state, she was very worried about him. She sent servants with clean clothes for him to put on, but he refused them. Esther then summoned for Hatak, one of the royal eunuchs assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was causing Mordecai such distress. Hatak went out into the city and found Mordecai at the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything, including the exact amount of money Haman had deposited into the treasury. He also gave Hatak a copy of the bulletins that had been posted throughout the city, the one ordering the massacre, and appealed to Hatak to show it to Esther and implore her to go into the king's presence and plead with him for her people. Hatak reported to Esther everything Mordecai had said. She then sent another message to Mordecai explaining that everyone in the palace, even the king's officials, had been warned that to approach Xerxes in his inner court without being summoned would result in death. Not even the queen was exempt from this law, and the king hadn't summoned her in 30 days. Mordecai responded to Esther's message with a final petition. He urged her not to foolishly assume that because she was living in the king's house, she would escape the imminent annihilation that was coming. If she remained silent, assuredly, deliverance for the Jews would arise from some other place, but she and her father's family would perish. Mordecai also proposed that perhaps this exact act of courage was the very reason she had become queen. After hearing this, 
Esther said to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So somebody said last night at this point, whoa. <laughs> I mean, the drama is so thick in this chapter that you can cut it. And yet, it's not a very complicated plot line here. It just takes a little understanding of the culture at that time, the Persian culture. So let's briefly review it. As we know, Haman wants to destroy all the Jews. And the king goes along with it because he doesn't know that his wife is Jewish. She didn't tell him this when she married him. Esther didn't because she didn't want to ruin everything. And, and Haman is convinced, the king, that the Jews are an evil and rebellious people. So he naturally thinks they should be gotten rid of. Mordecai is freaking out because this is a very real threat, and he finds a way to let Esther know about this. That's the story of chapter four, and he essentially tells her that now that she is queen, go to the king, tell him the truth, and get him to change his mind. I mean, it makes sense. And you gotta love Esther's response because she understands Persian culture at that time. She essentially says, it's not that easy, Mordecai. And then she tells him why. Look at verse 11 again, let's read it. It says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, Mordecai, that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I, Esther is speaking, have not been summoned to come to the king for the last 30 days. Now, just dial into three concepts here, this idea of being going into the inner court and then without being summoned, and then this idea of a golden scepter. And you'll start to understand the culture back then. You see, this king, who I said earlier, and I was right, is consumed with his own power, had one rule, and that is if anyone, anyone, came into the inner court where decisions were made for the kingdom and had not been personally summoned by the king, then he or she was to be killed on the spot. Unless, of course, the king decided to show some mercy of his own and extend this golden scepter as a sign that I show mercy on you and won't kill you for coming into the court unsummoned. And we know that even the wife of the king was subject to this rule because Vashti had been summoned and didn't come and he got rid of her in chapter one, his previous queen. And so we know that even the queen could face repercussions here. And so don't miss what Esther is saying. She's essentially saying, I said it earlier, my husband's a nutcase. He's consumed with his own power. He's driven by his own anger. And if I go barging in there, Mordecai, to plead for our people, even though he likes me at times and has a soft spot for me, he hasn't wanted anything to do with me for 30 days, and it could be the death of me and not much hope for our people as well. Pause here right now, because this goes back to what we started with today. Esther is experiencing that triple threat that we talked about. 
Think about it. There is a tough call that she has to make. That's what Mordecai is pointing out. And as a good Jew, that's the whole context of this book, she wants to make it in light of God's will and values according to the Old Testament. But there's a third thing going on here, and that is that she feels far from God. That's the whole context of this book. These people are in exile. There's no temple. There's no reading of the covenant or law. There's no priest performing sacrifices. There's very little word from the prophets. And all that they knew and were accustomed to when it came to connecting with God was missing. God is there, but he's behind the scenes. His providence is guiding things now. But they are having to trust that without being close to him in this time. So she's got this triple threat, tough call, in line with God's will, but feeling far from him. And so how does she make this call? That's the point here, the dilemma of chapter four. And again, we're gonna accelerate here in a minute with our main point, but before I do that, without belaboring this point, I need you guys to realize that we relate to Esther on a regular basis. We relate to this triple threat, where you and I get to a crossroad in life where a tough call needs to be made and maybe we even have a Mordecai in our life who points it out to us and then we want to make this tough call in light of God's will and leading because we love him and want to follow him but we don't feel that close to him. Maybe you do right now but the whole point of this series is that there's times that we feel far from God. It happens, we feel in exile. And so we can relate to Esther here where we have this dilemma in our lives, this triple threat, and we don't know exactly how to get through it. I led into this last week when I told you that story of me back in 2001 when I was a senior pastor in a church in Canada and I was on a study break, glorious time in the Grand Teton mountain range studying the book of Hebrews for two weeks alone and I was feeling very dry and distant from the Lord and I got a call from my home church back in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, the church that married me, discipled me, baptized me, sent me into the ministry saying, would you be one of the candidates for the next senior pastor. And again, I won't belabor the whole story again, but I I told you guys last week that I I thought to myself, how in the world can I make a decision like that when I feel so dry? And and, and that's the triple threat. A tough call needs to be made. You want to do so in light of God's leading and will, but you don't feel all that close to him. What do you do at that point? You see, what you can't do is ask the people on the other end, just wait for a few months or a year until I get spiritually strong, right? You're not going to say that to your boss. You're not going to say that to your marriage partner. Maybe you could. You're not going to say that to your, your rebellious kid. Life moves on, and a decision needs to be made. How do you do that? What do you do? How do we make decisions at the crossroads, especially when the Lord seems distant and the well seems dry? And though there's no simple and easy solution to all of this, there never is, there is something contained in the story of Esther here in chapter four that over the years I have found to be a wonderful and workable principle for making decisions at the crossroads. 
And it's your main and only point today. And it's this, it's kind of long, but I had to put a lot in here for us to truly understand what the Bible is saying here. And this is it. And that is that when God feels far away, self-denial and other-centeredness are his well-worn pathways toward making good decisions. Whoa. So dial into this. When you're close to God, you pray and you discern and you even hear him and all these things. And so you make decisions in line with his will. But when those things seem more dry, here's what Esther is going to teach us. And that is that if you can get into a mode of self-denial, meaning that it's not all about you and other centeredness, focusing on what benefits others, the Bible says those are God's general and well-worn pathways toward how how you and I filter the things around us into godly and good decision-making. And I love this principle because not only does it work, I'll show you that in a minute, I don't hear us talk enough about it and encourage each other enough in it because this is so thoroughly biblical and in line with what God says. To see this, I want you to look again at Mordecai's words in verses 13 to 14 of Esther 4. Uh, The context here is he's challenging her about that, that decision, that crossroad, that choice before her of whether to go to the king or not. Look again at what he says. He says, do not imagine that you, Esther, in the king's palace can escape any more than all the rest of us Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So look very close at what Mordecai is saying here to Esther. First, notice that he's saying, and this is obvious, you cannot hide or remain silent. In other words, because this is something we all try to do when a tough decision is before us and we don't feel close to God, that triple threat, we say, well, maybe I just won't do anything. And maybe I'll sort of just stop and freeze like that deer in the headlights thing and hope that that car coming before me stops and doesn't hit me. And that's how we kind of function. And Mordecai's saying, Esther, you can't do that. If you hide, you're going to be found out for the Jew that you are and fall under the same fate as us. If you remain silent, God is God. He's providential and he's going to deliver us anyways. It's just that you won't be a part of that. So don't, for, don't, notice, or don't miss what he's saying here. He's saying, don't think only of yourself, Esther. Because if you think of yourself only, you're going to make a terrible decision. And then secondly, notice that he is saying very positively, risk and act. Make a good decision anyways. Think more of your fellow Jews than you do of yourself. Isn't that what he's saying? Think of your nation and the consequences or even the blessings for them if you make the right decision here. And as we know, in response to this clear challenge, Esther utters three very powerful words that both reveal to us her decision as well as change the entire course of this story. These words appear in verse 16, and she says this, I will go. Three of the best words that probably ever appear in the Bible. And in all of this, don't miss that the core of Mordecai's challenge to Esther is that if you get selfless, 
and you get other focused, Esther. Even though there's a lot of risk and fear in this decision, it's God's way. And Esther agrees with this, and she does this. You see, folks, it's a truism about life this side of heaven. It's a key principle on how to live out godly decision-making that you do so in such a way that it involves self-denial and other-centeredness. And when you do that, there's a good chance, even if you don't feel close to God right now, that you're gonna make a good and godly decision. Some of you who are more biblically astute might be thinking right now, well, Jamie, you know, you're making a good case from Esther 4, even though it's a little bit veiled here. I mean, but does the rest of the Bible talk about this? I'm glad you asked. It actually does. Uh, Look at what Jesus would say in Matthew 16, verse 24. This is a great passage that many of you know, you just haven't put it in light of decision-making before. It, It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, that would also be you and I, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must say these two words with me. One more time. And take up his cross and follow me. So there it is. If you want to follow Jesus and thus know and be in the center of God's will, he says you need to have a general sense of self-denial, of denying yourself in order to be his follower. Wow. And then notice even more so, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, do nothing from selfishness. There's the self-denial piece again. Or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So there's even the other-centeredness piece. You see, this, this Esther ethic that we see in Esther is all over the place when it comes in the Bible, when it comes to how we make decisions, even when we're navigating divine distance. You see, for years, I've called this uh, God's reverse economics of decision-making. You're going to like this. I I call this God's reverse economics of decision-making. And hear me out. As most of us know, our world's system of economics has a formula that works this way. And it's what's built America. It's what's built most of your businesses, if you're a business person. And it's what's given you money to have the life that you have. And that is that you come up with a product that costs others something and they desire it so they pay you and then when they pay you there's a benefit to you in the form of money and our culture calls that success right it's economics 101 it's adam smith it's capitalism that you find something that others will pay for and there's a cost to them and then that when they pay for it it benefits you by giving you some dough some money and then you have the lifestyle that you have it's very simple economics cost to others profit to you economic success and it's how most of us have made the money that we have it's our world's economic system and i'm not saying it's bad at all in fact i'm kind of a fan of it it's built a pretty great country here here's a problem however And that is that if we're not careful, we can bring this same formula that works in economics, now watch this, into our relational life and even into our spiritual life. In other words, this idea of being a consumer 
in which you have a product and you sell that product and you pay for that, somebody pay for that product and it benefits you, this idea that you can somehow manipulate things around you, you bring it into your marriage, you bring it into your friendships, you bring it into your church, you bring it into your walk with God, and before you know it, you're functioning in those areas just like you do in the world. And again, I see it all the time. When people come to us, when the marriage goes south, I promise you, somebody is being a consumer too much in that marriage. Somebody is basically saying to their marriage partner, you exist to meet my needs. You exist to make me happy. You exist in order to bless me and benefit me. Again, we're bringing this equation into marriage. It better cost them something because, hey, I need something too. It better benefit me. And before you know it, your marriage is in trouble. Or how about church? We see this all the time. I mean, if you, you guys, it's just, I mean, we love you. But, but I can't tell you how many people come to church and they basically look at me and other people and say, what are you going to do for me now? In other words, this is just like any other business, right? I mean, you have a product, even though that product's Jesus, you have a product, and, 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 and I'm going to give some money and, and, and to this nonprofit organization, and I better get something out of it. And before you know it, we're not here to serve or glorify God or know him. No, we're treating our church just like we would Dairy Queen. And we say, where's my blizzard? And that's how we approach the church. So you do it in your marriage, you do it in your church, and here's the real tragedy, you do it with God. Many of us get disappointed with God, even angry with God, and you dig deep and look at where your disappointment comes from. I can tell you right now where it comes from, and that is you're basically saying, look, Lord, I have invested in this thing, and I have accepted you, and I've given up this, and I've done this, and I'm just not getting the benefit that I thought I should I spend much of my pastoral ministry trying to talk people down from the ledge of this equation. And here's why it's so incredibly insidiously evil. And that is that God, now give me another click here, to us in his word says the opposite. That's why I call God's way reverse economics. See, what God is telling us in Esther 4 what he tells us throughout the whole New Testament is that, no, 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 when it comes to me and my kingdom, it needs to cost you something and it needs to benefit others. And when it does, <laughs> you're on the right road. Notice this, gang. It's the opposite of the world. The world says it needs to cost others. God, God says, no, it needs to cost you. The world says it needs to benefit you. No, God says it needs to benefit others. And when you do that, when you get a little bit of self-denial and other centeredness into the equation, God says, now you're on the right road to making right decisions that will advance my kingdom and even in the end, give you the joy that you're looking for. Jesus once said it this way. I mean, he was so hard hitting, it's not funny. He said, for a man or woman to find his or her life, they need to lose it. For a man to be successful in relationships, Jesus said, he must love others just as much, if not more, than he loves himself. He needs to be about agape love. And folks, here's how powerful and life-giving and workable this principle is, that when I look back on the 35 years that I've been an adult trying desperately to follow Jesus, 
And I consider most, if not all, of my major life decisions, and there's been a ton of them, lots of times at the crossroads, I realize that when I've applied this principle here, whether I'm close to God or not, lo and behold, I made a good, upright, and godly decision at that crossroad. I can remember uh, one of the crossroads that was very significant to me. It'll kind of pick up on the story I told you last week. Uh, remember the story I told you last week was when I got fired from Youth for Christ, and, and then I went on to, to finish seminary and went to my first pastorate in Detroit where I experienced a lot of healing. Well, fast forward about a decade, and it's about 1997 right now, and I'd been an associate pastor for about seven years at a wonderful church in Detroit. We were growing, we were reaching lost people, and, and I had grown from being the associate pastor to eventually the, quote, executive pastor. I don't know if I like that phrase, but executive pastor. I was managing other pastors. And, and as I healed and grew in my confidence and trust in the Lord, I, I realized by about 1997 that, that I wanted my senior pastor's job. The only problem was he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I really felt kind of stuck. I was at a crossroads and again, I would argue that everybody needs a Mordecai in their life sometimes. Everybody needs somebody at that crossroad to kind of point out to them, don't stay here, a decision needs to be made. And my Mordecai at that time was a guy by the name of Scott. He was the head of our counseling center at the church. And, uh, and again, I'd been in counseling, so he and I became friends. And at one point, we were talking about my life and this crossroad that I felt. And he said, well, you, you need to leave Detroit. He said, you need to go into the senior pastorate. And you need to find what God has for you next. And I remember saying to him, but I don't want to leave Detroit. In hindsight, I don't know why I would say that, but I, I was like, I don't want to leave Detroit. I was like, my kids have been born here. All my friends are here. I've healed at this church and I love this church and I'm comfortable and I have a house and I have a mortgage and, 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 I, and I love it here. I don't want to leave. And he said, well, have you thought about trying to find a church here? I said, yeah, I just can't, can't seem to find one. He said, you need to broaden it and you need to leave. And I can remember just agonizing over that crossroad and just feeling I, I don't want to go. I mean, any more than any of you want to leave Scottsdale or wherever you are right now. And as I prayed about it and sought the Lord on it, I, I didn't get complete clarity. Uh, but this did become clear. And this was very convicting to me. And that is that my greatest argument to God about why I didn't want to leave Detroit was comfort. Amen? It was comfort. I mean, I'm not trying to be hard on myself. It's just true. I was comfortable there. All my friends were there. My house was there. My church was there. And yet he was calling me to go into the senior pastorate. And so I had to make a choice between comfort and the safety of all that I knew and the risk of going into uncharted territory, uprooting my family to another place. And, and I'm telling you folks, this equation here became very important to me because I realized that, that this decision was gonna cost me, it was gonna benefit others in the kingdom, and there's a really good chance that that's gonna be the right choice. And indeed, that was the choice that I made. And it was costly. And I could fill your boots with some difficulties that came from that decision for me and my family at that time. But are you starting to see a significant thread of most any godly and right decision, at least that I've ever made, has had some aspect of it costing me something and benefiting others. And here's the real kicker. 
The converse is also true. <laughs> that most of my bonehead decisions, and I have them, uh, that I've made over the years, uh, most likely had my welfare in mind and my happiness as the center. And in hindsight, they have not been very good and godly decisions. So when it's all about me, it never tends to go well. When it's about others and costs me something and ultimately about God's glory, then those tend to be the right decisions. And the point is this, because Esther teaches us this, you can make those decisions even when you're struggling spiritually. God says you can do that. You know, I sit in my home office and I think, well, what's, what's the rebuttal to this? Like, what, you know, like right now I'm thinking you guys should be falling down and calling me blessed. This is such good stuff, right? I mean, like, wow. I mean, and it's, it's Esther, so it's not me, but it's good stuff. And, and I, so I think as I'm a lawyer's kid, you know, what is the rebuttal? What could somebody say? And I love the rebuttal I came up with that I'd probably come up with too if I was sitting where some of you are. And that's it, well, doesn't my happiness count? I mean, don't I have a right to be happy? Now, now let's, um, let's talk about it for a second. When my kids would ask a question like that when they were young, I used to always say to them, do you want the long answer or the short answer to that? And my kids would always say, because they were pretty bright, I want the short answer. And being a good parent, I would give them the short answer followed up by the long answer. So let me do that for you right now, okay? When you ask, don't I have a right to be happy? I love this because this is so the Bible. The short answer is no. Now, I know some of you don't like that. You're going, really? Really? Here's what the Bible says you have a right to. Here's what the Bible says you deserve. And that is that you have a right to hell for all of eternity apart from him because of your sin and rebelliousness. And again, guys, you guys have to believe that. I love you. I'm not down on you. It's just that that's humanity's default state, and it's a good state to be in because it lets us know who we are and our need for God and Jesus as our Savior. Amen? So your default position is that I have a right to hell for all of eternity apart from God because of my sin, and yet the beauty of the gospel and God's grace is that he gives you Jesus and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and a new lease on life, but if you reject all of that, the thing you still deserve is eternity apart from him. So as a follower, I told you it'd be a long answer, as a follower of him, when you then say to him, when he says it's got to cost you and benefit others, when you come back at him and say, well, what about me? Don't I deserve to be happy? He takes you back to the beginning. <laughs> and he says, well, let me tell you what you deserve. And then he says this, and this is where it all becomes a happy thing again. He says, but if you follow me, if you engage in self-denial, if you engage in other-centeredness, one of the byproducts of that will eventually be your joy. Isn't that awesome? It might not give you the giddies. I make a distinction between happiness and joy. You guys know that. Happiness is that fleeting feeling that you're going to get after church when you eat a nice meal. Happiness is watching the Cleveland Browns win. Happiness are, is maybe even a nice night out with your wife or your husband. Those are all wonderful things. Joy is that deep sense of satisfaction that you're on the right road in life. It's that deep sense that you're centered on where you should be with God and with those around you. And when it costs you and you get others centered, one of the byproducts of that is joy. So as we get down to, to, to the short strokes here, think about your life right now and whatever you may be facing. 
Think about what happened if you applied the Esther ethic of costing you and benefiting others. For those of you in marital breakdown right now, just think what God might do with that kind of mindset. For those of you dealing with a wayward kid, think what God might do with that. I got a, my wife got an email this morning from somebody who uh, was applying last week's message and uh, she had a fall out, falling out with one of her business partners and, uh, and, and she was saying that, that, that based on last week's message, she decided to write this business partner a, a long note that basically says, I love you and I forgive you and, and I wanna reconcile. Again, you never know what God's gonna do but when we take that narrow road that he has for us. Think about sin that grips you, that, that crossroad where you have to make a risky decision on whether or not to deal with that sin finally and get the help that you need. But you realize it's gonna be costly and it's gonna be even embarrassing to have to admit it. But maybe this idea of costing you something and benefiting others will, will finally get you on the right road. You see, sometimes in life, tough things happen that require a difficult decision. And it's a real bummer when this collates with God seeming very distant. But Esther teaches us that there is a way through it if it costs you and benefits others. And then as we wrap this up, we've got two minutes before we go to the communion table. Here's the final thing Esther 4 teaches us, and I love this one. And that is that once you make the decision, and you gotta do this, gang, you then commit your way to God and trust him to guide you. Uh, one last verse we're gonna look at in Esther 4 here, and I'll just prepare you right now because this is so cool. And that is that the verse we're going to look at right now is the most spiritual verse in this entire book. It's not a very spiritual book, is it? It doesn't mention God, prayer, mercy, the law. I mean, this book is written as, almost as a secular book, but it has a few spiritual nuggets in it, and here's one of them. Look at what Esther does after she makes the decision to go to the king and, and, and to tell him all that's going on. She says to Mordecai, go. Assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go to the king, which is not according to law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Twice Esther mentions there this idea of fasting. I think you all know this. She wasn't doing this as a weight loss routine, right? I mean, she's not talking about her diet in the middle of this big spiritual decision. No, in the Bible, when people fast, now watch this, they do so to underline their prayers. Fasting is a beautiful way where we deprive the physical body in order to ignite or, or enlighten the senses of the soul to be more attuned to God. So you deprive one thing in order to lift up another. That's the idea behind fasting. And so fasting puts you in a place before God where you are more attuned to him in your spirit and you're underlining the prayer or need before you. That's how the Jews fasted in the Old Testament and how Christians in the New Testament fasted and ever since. And notice that this is a three-day fast. A typical fast in the Old Testament would be one day. This is what commentators call a severe fast or a fast of intercession where Esther is underlining her prayer and requests before God. In other words, she's committing her way to the Lord and trusting him to guide her. It all goes back to this idea of his providence, 
that he is providential and in his providence, he is in control of things and Esther is laying herself out before God's providence and we need to do so as well. So for those of you at the crossroad, make the decision you need to make, do so. As you pray about it, as you seek God, do so in such a way that it costs you and benefits others. Self-denial and other-centeredness, those are your friends. And as you make that decision, don't stop there. Lay it out before God. Commit it to him and trust him to guide you. I love how the proverb says it. It says, in his heart a man plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. And God will do that. Let's bow and pray. Father, thank you for our time together. We are are excited now to go to this communion table. And so, Lord, I pray as we do, we would be reflective, we would be focused on you. And Lord, for those of us who are in that spiritually dry time now, may we take heart, may we learn from the book of Esther, as we've seen in this book, that your providence still reigns, humility can still live in our souls, uh, making the right call, as we've seen today, can be something that our lives are about. And so, Lord, may spiritual dryness not get us down, but may we stay in the ring with you And may, again, as I've been praying through this whole series, that though there's weeping in the night, may there be joy in the morning. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.